0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the chapter that we read at the beginning, the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, and in verse 25, the 25th verse, in the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. Now, many of you, I have no doubt, were rather amazed at the beginning when I read this particular chapter instead of reading one of the earlier chapters of one or the other of the Gospels in which we have an account of the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you may be surprised that I'm now proposing to call your attention to this particular verse because this chapter, as we all know, is a chapter describing something that happened at the end of our Lord's life, it is his great high priestly prayer that he offered almost immediately before his death upon the cross. Now, why have I done this? Well, I've got two main reasons for doing so. The first is that I'm anxious to emphasize the importance of taking the life of our Lord as a whole. There is nothing more dangerous than to concentrate only on certain parts or portions or aspects of his life. Now, the New Testament doesn't want us to do that. It gives a whole picture. It gives us a total picture. And it does that, of course, because everything that he did was part and parcel of one great purpose, so that it is very wrong indeed to take one aspect or one section only and stop at that. Now, the world, of course, is constantly doing this. Take, for instance, those in the world who are very interested in this question of Christmas and the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. They're tremendously interested in that. Why? Well, because they say there is uh, the element of romance, something that helps us and comforts us and cheers us in the darkness and the discouragements and the unhappiness of this world, life with its stark realities and its miseries and problems and trials, it's a wonderful thing to, to be able to turn to the romantic and to forget our problems and to look at something beautiful. Ah, oh, they say we couldn't live without this. It's good for us now and again, once a year at it, just to remember these strange things that will happen from time to time. The way in which the gloom is now and again relieved, something that gives us a legitimate excuse for being happy and uh, rejoicing and enjoying ourselves together. The world uh, takes this peculiar interest in the birth of our Lord. It would like to keep him in the manger. It likes that. That's interesting. That's wonderful. That's romantic. They can handle him, as it were, while he's there, Uh, but of course the They don't like him so much when he goes on and when he teaches and preaches and when he dies upon the cross. So it's a very wrong thing just to concentrate upon the babe of Bethlehem alone. There are others who concentrate only on his teaching. Oh, they say that's what we want. This is very popular at the present time. You know these people, these good men, so-called, these moralists, The world admires them tremendously. One of them said, you remember, about 18 months or so ago, that he'd been brought up to be religious, but somebody asked him, the interviewer asked him, what's your position now? Well, of course, he said, I no longer believe the doctrines of Christianity, but I still hold on to the ethic. He doesn't believe in the virgin birth any longer. He's outgrown that. He doesn't believe in the sacrificial death, but he's very interested in the teaching of Christ. That's all he wants. He's not interested in the babe, but he's interested in this great and supreme teacher, the ethical interest. And then there are others, as you know, who seem to be only interested in the death of our Lord. Not that they're interested in that in the right way, but there they see the great passive resistor, the great pacifist, the man who died for his principles. They don't like this romance. This babe of Bethlehem, they're not interested in that. They don't, they don't believe in the virgin birth and things like that. No, no. But they're interested in this one question of pacifism. And they think that here they find the supreme pacifist. So they're always talking about the one who stood by his principles, even to the point of dying upon the cross. Well, now, I'm mentioning these things to you to show you the danger of taking any one aspect and stopping at that alone. So we go to the end of his life, as we are thinking this evening of the beginning of his life. The beginning and the end and the intervening portion are all one. It's the person that matters, this person of whom we are told and who speaks in the verse that we are looking at together. Let's then look at him in all that he did and in all that he is. That's my first reason. My second reason is because this verse, with its own realism, tells us about one of the most important results of his coming into this world. This person whom we are looking at divides mankind. There has never been a greater divisive force in the world than this blessed person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the result of his coming is this, he's divided uh, the whole of humanity into two groups, the world and these. Here he is in the middle, I, and the effect of this I, this coming, is that there are those who are the world and these, these others. You notice it runs right through the chapter, doesn't it? Now, here is something again which is constantly forgotten, and yet it's very important that we should realize it, because we are seeing this very thing at the present time. You know, my friends, you and I are in a very small minority by being in this building at this moment. The vast majority of people in this country are not doing at this moment what you and I are doing. We are a very small company. I anticipated that. That was another reason why I'm calling your attention to this particular verse. I hope it's going to comfort you. I hope it's going to make you feel glad that you've come here. We are not only a minority, we are a dwindling minority. I know of nothing that is quite so saddening as the way in which a large number of churches tonight are not holding a service. I thank God for people like you who are in front of me at this moment. I'd have preached here if there was just one to listen But I am so glad to see so many gathered together. It's a sad day when the church allows herself to be governed by the world and its way, and jumps at almost any excuse not to meet together. Why, there's every reason for meeting tonight. It's not only Sunday, but it's Christmas Day on top of that. We've got double the reason for coming tonight that we've ever had before, on an ordinary Sunday. Well, now then, I think this is indicative of the fact that we belong to the these that he talks about here. The world these. Now let's just look briefly at these things. I'm in a great difficulty as to what to do with you. I promised it was going to be a short service, and I don't know which is the better way of rewarding you, of being very brief or really allowing the word to take us on. However, I must keep my promise. I announced it would be a brief service, and it's going to be. Now let's look at these three things which we've got here. I, there he is in the middle. And on one side of him is the world, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. These have known that thou hast sent me. Here he is, the great divider. You remember? He put it on one occasion like this. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. That's where the world shows its utter blindness, isn't it? It thinks of Christmas, you see, as some vague sentimental occasion. Peace on earth. Let's all forget our differences and be happy now and embrace one another. Peace. He said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I am come, he says, to set a father against his son and the mother against the daughter and so on. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. He's a divider. He always has been. He is tonight. He's dividing the world this evening. The vast majority of people know nothing about him. They don't understand the meaning of Christmas. They are not aware of what it's all about. But thank God there is this other company, the these, whom he mentions here. Well, now, let's look for a moment at him. He stands here in the center. O oh, righteous Father, he says, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. What a stupendous claim. What a tremendous statement. You know nobody else has ever ventured to say that. Here is a unique claim. Because we must realize the fullness of what he's saying here. He is really claiming that he knows God. I mean by that not that he knows things about God but that he has an intimate, personal knowledge of God. That is his claim. It is his claim everywhere. It is the claim that is made for him by the writers of the gospel. Take John in this very epistle. In the first chapter, the 18th verse, he says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's manifested him. He's taught about him. He's led him out. That's what it means. Here is one, the only one, who can really teach us about God. Now, our Lord himself was constantly making this selfsame claim. Do you remember how he put it in his conversation with that great man Nicodemus? Listen to this in the third chapter, in verse 10 and so on. Jesus answered and said unto him, Nicodemus, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of men which is in heaven. Now that's the claim that this person makes. All right, we are thinking of the babe of Bethlehem. But remember, when that babe grew up and at the age of 30 began to preach, that is the sort of thing he said. He said, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That was his claim, and John repeats it. Here he is saying to Nicodemus, look here. I know what I'm talking about. Nobody else does. I'm testifying, he says, to that which I have seen. He says, I'm not merely talking about God and giving him my thoughts about God. I know God. I have come from God. No man can ascend up into heaven, he says. Nobody's ever succeeded. The greatest men of the world have been trying to find God, but they can't. As Paul puts it, the world by wisdom knew not God. Philosophy can't discover God. Here is one who says, I know. I have seen. I've come from him. I've looked face to face with God. Indeed, the prologue has already told us that, hasn't it? He was face to face with God. The same was in the beginning with God. Face to face with God it means. Now here is a striking and a stupendous statement. He's making it in this same chapter. He says, Father, now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory that I had with thee before the world was. That's what he is saying. That is what he is claiming. And that is the vital thing for us to look at this evening. This person, Christ, the Jesus that was born in that stable in Bethlehem and put into the manger, is the one who has come out of the glory. He had a glory with the Father from all eternity. He has laid it aside for a while in order to come into the world in this way. And here he is at the end of his life. He says, Father, give me back again. Glorify with thine own self me also with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. This is the most stupendous thing that has ever happened or ever can happen. We are not dealing here with something ordinary. We are here to celebrate the fact that the Son, the Lord of glory, left the courts of heaven and was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. The word was made flesh and hath dwelt among us. That is the great thing that we are looking at this evening. That's the thing that we must keep in the forefront of our minds on this day and during these days and indeed always. He claims that he has been sent into the world in order to accomplish a particular task. Listen to him. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. He's come on a mission. It's a very definite mission. It's a specific work. God had planned it before the very making of the world, before the foundation of the world, before the creation. God had planned this great scheme. He hands it to his Son, and the Son has come into the world in order to do and to finish this work for which his father sent him into this world. Now, isn't it a tragic thing that the world tonight, I say, doesn't know anything about this at all. With all its sentimental nonsense about the babe and so on, it knows nothing about this glorious work, this plan, this mighty purpose. But this, he says, is the thing for which he came into the world. This is, as I'm never tired of saying, the supreme tragedy. Look at our world as it is tonight. And men and women have no idea that God has done this one thing that can give anybody any hope or any relief. They're not thinking about it. They're thinking about everything else. They're not concerned about it. Isn't this the tragedy, that with the world as it is this night, men and women at this moment are doing everything except considering this person, this I, this unique person who has come from God because he is God himself, the Son, and who knows God, and who can tell us the truth about God, who can tell us all about God's plan and purpose, He has come to do the greatest and the most glorious thing of all, to give us a knowledge of God. It's the one thing the world needs to know. It's the one thing it's not interested in. Oh, the tragedy of it all. Yes, you see, the last, the end of this gospel is the same as the beginning. In the very first chapter of John, where it's dealing, as it were, primarily with his birth, it can't help forgetting and remembering his Death, because it puts it like this in the very prologue. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Well, there it is. We start with this great person. He is God the Son. The one who had the glory with the Father at the beginning, he, and was going to have it back again, who has left it, laid it aside for a while, who has humbled himself, who has entered into this world of time and lived as a man, but is going back to it. That's the one we're looking at. Well, now let's look for a moment at the world in which he, into which he came. Because he tells us something about this world. You see, it was because of the state of the world that he ever did come. And what do we find here? What does he tell us? What does he mean by the world? He says, oh, righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. The world, of course, means not the physical universe, but it means men and women as they are and as life is organized apart from God. It means the mind, the attitude, and the outlook of the natural man. That's what he means by the world. It's the way in which the word is used everywhere in the scriptures. The world. And you and I know what the world is, don't we? The world at this moment, as I've already reminded you, is not doing what we are doing. What is the world? Well, you see, the world and the way of the world is that which leads people to live only for pleasure... So many are living to eat. So many are living to drink. So many are just living to gratify their passions and their lusts and their desires. That's all they're living for. That's the world. You know how it's spending its night tonight? They'd think we were completely mad by doing what we are doing. Fancy coming out on a night like this with the buses having stopped, a very irregular and infrequent underground service the other mainline service is still more infrequent. And see, they say, coming out on a night, and look what they're doing. Still singing those old hymns and carols, preaching out of that old book, the Bible, which is so out of date. They think this is mad. Why? Well, because they're living uh, for these other things. Ah, uh, yes, but unfortunately, that isn't the whole truth about the world, is it? The world is full of unhappiness. Look at all its divisions. National, within the nation. Groups within the nations. The divisions even in the groups. Even a circle like the family circle. Divided, torn. Separations, divorces. Oh, this day in which we think so much of the little children. Think of many little children who are breaking their hearts. First Christmas, perhaps their mother isn't with them. She's gone away. First Christmas, perhaps the father isn't with them. He's left them. That's the world. The world that would have us think it's so happy. Christmas, good cheer, bringing out its bottles, drinking. Let's be happy. Let's have a good time. Oh, what a sad, what an unhappy world it is. What heartache there is. What misery, what wretchedness, what unhappiness. Yes, and what ugliness. It's getting more and more ugly, isn't it? It's getting more and more coarse. Theft and robbery on the increase, violence, the decency is no longer respected. That's the world. It's a place of sin. It's a place of war. Look at the nations. Look at your century. We see it torn by these two world wars. And all the misery that they've brought in their train. And still the world is none the wiser. It's still going on in the same way. Well, my friends, that is the world. But why is the world like that? Why is the world so unhappy tonight? Trying to persuade itself it is happy. Whistling to keep up its courage in the dark. On with the dance, persuading itself that all is well. But in the depths so wretched that it dare not stop and think, has to drug itself in various ways to keep itself going. A world with increasing psychological problems and troubles and breakdown in a nervous sense. What's the matter with it? Why is it like this? Well, our Lord tells us here. Oh righteous Father, he says, the world has not known thee. And that's why it is as it is. That's why men and women are living that sort of life. That's why the world is torn and unhappy and divided as it is. It's simply because it hasn't known God. What's he mean? Well, he means things like this. (laughs) It doesn't know God himself. What do you mean, says someone? Well, he means this. It doesn't know God as he knew him. Because, you see, if the world had only known God, it wouldn't have wanted all these other things. Because once you know God, you don't want anything else. To know God is to know everything, to have everything. And the poor old world lives as it does and does what it does because it doesn't know God. It's running after its gaudy treasures, seeking its wonderful prizes. Why? Well, because it doesn't know the glory of God. Seeking importance and self-importance, wanting introductions to great people full of ambition and rival, everybody trying to climb and to get on. What's the matter with them? Why the restlessness? Oh, this is the answer. They don't know God. You know, my friends, the moment you have one glimpse of a knowledge of God, you're satisfied. Everything else is unimportant. It becomes rubbish. There's nothing in it. And the world is as it is because literally it has never had any of this knowledge of God which satisfies the profoundest needs and desires of human nature. But you see, because it doesn't know God, it doesn't know the truth about itself either. And that's why the world is as it is. It doesn't know what it's meant to be. It doesn't understand men. You'll never understand men unless you know God. Men can only be understood in the light of God. That's why our Lord, you remember, in his ministry, when he was asked about the first and the greatest commandment, said, he said, the first commandment is this, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength. That is the first. He said the second is like it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But you'll never love your neighbor as yourself until you've loved God first. Because you don't know what yourself is. What is man? Well, you'll never know what man is until you know God. You start with God and then you realize what man is. For God made man. He made him like himself in his own image. That's the way to understand man. But the world doesn't know God, so it doesn't know man. The tragedy of men and women tonight who are not in a place of worship. I know there are many good Christians who just can't get to a place of worship. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about those who have no desire to do so. You know, the trouble with them is they don't know what man is. And they are trying to satisfy themselves, this creature, men, with things that can never satisfy him. Nothing less than God can satisfy men. They don't know the meaning of the world, the whole purpose that God had for the world, why he made men as he did. Oh, it's this debased notion of man. Men and women are thinking of themselves as animals more and more. And these people, you see, their photographs plastered in the newspaper so constantly, they're just animals. What else can you call them? Well-dressed, perhaps, plenty of money, but they're behaving like animals. They're controlled by their lusts and their passions. They have no idea what man in his true nature really is. And that's because they don't know God. And another thing is this. Because they don't know God, they don't know his laws. And the trouble with the world tonight is that it's lawless. Every man's a law unto himself. Every man's out for himself. Why? Well, because they don't know the laws of God. The laws of God tell us about our neighbor as well as ourselves. We mustn't covet our neighbor's possessions. We mustn't covet his wife or his servant or his ox or his ass. No, no. We must respect him and his possessions. But the world's not interested in law. This is what I want. This is what I like. I'm going to have it. The world doesn't know about law, and hence the world is as it is. All our major troubles tonight are due to lawlessness. There They are paralyzed by an almost general strike in Belgium. I don't know the particular merits, but I do know that that's at the back of it. It's at the back of all these things. It's at the back of every war. It's everybody out for himself wanting something that isn't his right. Hence the state of the world this evening. It's all because it doesn't know God. If everybody knew God and the law of God and lived according to it, there'd be no trouble in the world, literally none. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee. What else don't they know? Well, you see, they don't know this. Not knowing God, they have no idea that they're under the wrath of God. But whether they know it or not, it's a fact The world is at this moment under the wrath of God. God has said, there is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. God punishes evil. And when the world, as it has been doing for the last hundred years has thought that it is so clever that it doesn't need God and can do away with him. And when a foolish man, like that retired judge I've already quoted, says, he's not interested in the doctrines, but he's holding on to the ethic, he doesn't realize that a thing like that brings down the wrath of God upon men. You can't insult God and his son, and nothing happened to you. The world is under the curse of God at the present time. God has said that he will curse the world if it doesn't honor him and obey him and glorify his name. He is punishing the world at the moment. In spite of all our efforts, in spite of all our advances and discoveries, look at the position. You can't explain it in any other way. The wrath of God is upon all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold down the truth in ungodliness. But you see, the world doesn't know that. They're not thinking about that. They're pinning their face to a new year. I don't think many of them are pinning much face to it at the moment. We're beginning to get over that, aren't we? The world, you see, is beginning to become utterly hopeless. Because there is no hope. But it's all due to the fact that it doesn't know God. It was like that when he came into it. That's why he came into it. The world had gone wrong. It had gone astray. It had fallen from God. It didn't know God. And he has come into the world, why? Well, to tell us about God and to bring us back to God, to give us this knowledge of God. That's why he's come. And that brings me to my last heading, which is these, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and thee have known that thou hast sent me. Now I say the first effect of his coming is to divide the human race. He's doing it now. He's always done it. What he does is this, you see. He separates certain people out of that world, the world that doesn't know God and that's not interested in him. He separates certain people out of that and he calls them these. These. They don't belong to the world. These have known that thou hast sent me. What is it that makes the difference then between the world and these whom he puts apart? Well, he tells us it is their realization of who he is and why he has come into this world. He's been saying it right through this chapter. Listen to him in verse 6. He says, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. That's what puts one into this category of the these. These are the people who have believed and have known the truth concerning this babe of Bethlehem. They don't see there a mere cause for jollification or this loose, vapid talk about goodwill and good cheer and so on. These are not just your ethical people. These are not just your pacifists. Who are these then? Well, these are people who say, this is the Son of God. This is the one who has been sent out by the Father. This is the most stupendous thing that's ever happened. This isn't men. This is God. God the Son sent by the Father to do this special work of which he's speaking. These are the people who have this understanding concerning him. And I'm happy to think that you, my friends, are in this category at this moment. That you are in this service because... Standing out above everything you know or everything you have ever believed is your attitude to this person. Ah, oh, you can be interested in many other things, In art, in culture, in politics, in the whole state of the world, it's all right. But you say, yes, but you know, the thing that makes me what I am is that I know that God has sent his only son into this world. You say, this is the biggest factor in my life. This is the greatest thing that I know. That Jesus of Nazareth was the only begotten son of God. These have known that thou hast sent me. That's the secret. Well, now, let me tell you before I leave you what uh, this belief in him and this realization of who and what he is has done to these. Shall we remind ourselves of what we are and what happens to us and what is true of us because we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, friends, we are the elect people. Oh, but you're praising yourself, says someone. All right, we have a right to praise ourselves. We are these. Thank God for it. Let's remind ourselves this Christmas evening of some of the things that are true of us because we belong to this special category. These. What is true of us? Well, the first thing is that we are forgiven and are reconciled to God. You know he said this, didn't he? He said here, For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. What's he mean by sanctifying himself? He means I'm going to set myself apart. He was referring to his death, his death upon the cross. He says, for their sakes, I am giving myself, putting myself into the hands of God that he may do with me whatever he wills. And he knew what it meant. He had gone through the struggle in the garden of Gethsemane. He knew. That his soul was to be made an offering for sin. He knew that God was going to lay on him the iniquity of us all. He knew that God was going to smite him for our sins and for our guilt. He sanctified himself. He handed himself over. He put himself at God's disposal. That's what he means. For their sakes I sanctify myself. He gave himself right up and right over unto death. And why did he do it? Well, he died that we might be forgiven. His soul was made an offering for sin that our sins might be blotted out as a thick cloud and never be seen again. That's the first thing. And what a wonderful thing it is tonight. Is there any gift on earth comparable to this gift of forgiveness in a sense? It's the first great gift, Christmas gifts. Have you got it? Are you rejoicing in it? Have you received it? Do you know that your sins are forgiven? If you really believe in this person, you know you do. That's the first thing you receive, forgiveness of sins. You are reconciled unto God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses. My dear friend, let me ask you a simple and a homely question tonight. Have you received the gift of forgiveness? Do you know that your past is blotted out? Do you know that your every sin has been cancelled because Christ's blood was shed for you upon the cross? Do you know it? Are you rejoicing in it? That's the great Christmas gift that comes first. But let me hurry on. How difficult it is to keep one's promise with a theme like this. Not only forgiveness, eternal life. As thou hast given power, him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. What's it mean? Well, it means a new life. It means a divine life. It means you become partaker of the divine nature. It means that you have a new heart. Life eternal, not only in duration, but in quality. It means that though we are still men, there is a spark upon Principle of a divine life put into us a seed something of the life of god is put into our soul have you got it have you received this that's what he came to do that's what he came to give have you received it christmas gifts Have you got it, Christian people? Do you know that the life of God is in your soul at this moment? Do you feel its kindling, its movements, its activity within you? He came to give that. The world doesn't know these things. Oh, privileged people sitting in this chapel tonight, feeling it was worthwhile to come out. It is, isn't it, to hear about these things? New life which will never end, which will go on to all eternity, and that the life of God, what does it lead to? Well, it leads to the knowing of the name of God. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. The name of God, what is it? Well, it tells us what God is. And the name we rejoice in, of course, above all, is that he's our Father. Our Father which is in heaven. Do you know God as your Father? Father. Or do you still think of God as some awful specter, some ogre, as it were, someone who terrifies you and alarms you, someone whom you hate? Or do you know him as your Father, your loving Father? Christ reveals him to us in his name of Father. But not only that, let me remind you that he tells us that we are separated from the world. They are not of the world. Even, he says, as I am not of the world. You see, he came into it. He was never of it. He was in it, but he was never of it. And what he does to us is he takes us out of it. They are not of the world. That world that's living, as I've been telling you, that world that's miserable and unhappy, that world that's burning itself out in its lusts and passions and that has nothing left when its money has gone, this world, this awful world, we are taken out of it. We no longer belong to it. He separated us. These... We belong to a different category. We are no longer governed by its mind and by its outlook. We are no longer controlled by its thinking and by its vain and futile hopes, but still more important, we are no longer involved in its doom. My friends, this world is a doomed world. It's a world that's under judgment. And the judgment may come at any moment, I don't know when, but it's coming. I know that. This world is under the wrath and the judgment of God. It is going to be punished with a final punishment. This Christ who came the first time as the babe of Bethlehem will come as the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He'll ride the clouds of Him, and he'll come to judge the world in righteousness and it shall be punished with an everlasting destruction. The world is a doomed world. It doesn't know God. It doesn't know Christ. It remains under the wrath and in the doom. Thank God these are not of the world. We have nothing to fear, my friends. We are already separated from this present evil world. He's brought us out of it. He's translated us out of it. And we shall not be involved in its doom. When the world is doomed and goes to disaster, we shall shine in the brightness of his glory. We shall be with him. And we shall enjoy our eternity with him. Do you know that as a fact of your experience? Are you rejoicing in that? Have you received that truth? We are sanctified also. For their sakes I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified by the truth, through the truth. You know, God has set us apart. We are his own peculiar possession. His love, his eye is upon us. We are his people. We don't belong to the world. We belong to God. We are God's people. And because of that We are those who are enjoying certain peculiar and special blessings. Here are some of them. We are being perfected, sanctified by the word. Jesus Christ himself is praying for us. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep Through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. Don't you find the fight difficult and hard and trying at times? Well, remember that he's praying for you. He's interceding on your behalf. Be comforted by that thought. What else? Well, he says that uh, he's giving us his joy, that my joy may be in them. His love is in us, and he tells us this stupendous thing. Listen to this. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. God is loving us who belong to this group of the these, even as he loved his own son. Not only that, he's given us his own glory. He says that he has given them his glory as the Father had given his glory unto him. He goes beyond it and says this, that he, the Son of God, dwells in us. Thou in me, and I in them. I don't pretend to understand it. But this is the most glorious thing about Christianity that if we are truly belonging to the category of the these, God the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and is living in us. And lastly, because of all this, the day is coming when we are going to have a wonderful sight. Father, I will that they also, whom Thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which Thou hast given me. Oh, the glory of the Christian position. In this world we shall have tribulations. He had tribulations when He was here, He suffered, suffered terribly. He was spat upon, he was mocked, he was jeered at. They took him and condemned him though he was innocent and they crucified him, they killed him, he was buried. That's how the world treated him. And he said, the servant is not above his Lord. He tells us here that we can expect the same sort of treatment as he had himself. The foolish blind world that doesn't know God laughs at us tonight. It feels sorry for us. Oh, the poor, unhappy, blind, damned world. I'll tell you the sight that it's going to receive the sight of the holiness and the majesty, the condemnation, the sight of hell, the sight of everlasting destruction. But I can tell you also what you and I are going to see. We are going to behold His glory. He prayed that we might see it, and we are going to see it. We shall not only see his glory, we shall receive something of it. For when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. Oh, yes, says Paul, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, he says, we have this access into this grace wherein we stand, and above all, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. These, these have known that thou hast sent me. And those are the truths about the these. Christian people, are you rejoicing in all this? Are you rejoicing in this knowledge? Have you received all this with God's gift of his own Son? Oh, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. He's given him, and with him, he has given us all these things. The world doesn't know God, doesn't know Jesus Christ, doesn't know anything of these things. But these have known that Thou hast sent me. There's nothing comparable to this. To know God and Jesus Christ to me is sent, to know Jesus Christ as my Savior, my Lord my all and in all, and to rejoice in hope of that glory which is coming. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Amen.